the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. The fact that decarbonisation will touch every aspect of shipping's future is well understood. But nailing down the specific implications for shipping amid increasingly nebulous industry debate is not always easy. The direction of travel is set, but the devil in the detail is yet to reveal itself fully, and the energy transition is not going to be uniform. The stakes are high, and let's be frank, many of the companies operating today are not going to survive this transition. So we're starting to take a look in a little bit more depth at the decisions required and the tipping points that are ultimately going to decide who are the winners and who are the losers. Next month, on May the 12th, we are hosting a live webinar on the subject. 9am London time, 4pm Singapore time. Go to loislist.com to register for free immediately. But ahead of that conversation... I thought it would be an interesting opportunity to invite onto the podcast someone who is not just theoretically grappling with these questions, but someone who's actually having to advise on the multi-billion dollar decisions that will decide whether or not one of the biggest fleets currently in operation is going to survive. My guest this week is Bud Dar, Executive Vice President of Maritime Policy and Government Affairs at MSC Group. Welcome to the podcast, Bud. Hi, Richard. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be with you. Well, we're talking about decarbonisation. It seems to be the only topic we talk about these days. But of course, it is a big nebulous topic that involves everything from strategic energy policy at an intergovernmental level down to the, the tangible nuts and bolts decisions that companies like your own is having to make as a result of it. I wanted to really try and get a view from you as to what the, the practical decisions look like in terms of the transition. We all know what the goals are. We know what 2050 looks like, but the big multi-billion, if not trillion dollar decisions are, are going to be around the transition and, and how we get there. I've been perhaps a little rude to uh, some ship owners in describing you know, them as being in a race to be second when it comes to decarbonizing the, the global fleet. And what I mean by that is saying that, you know, first movers risk an expensive early obsolescence while the laggards looking to profit from an uneven transition risk being left behind by what we've described as, you know, a fairly rapidly changing market set of requirements. So talk to us about what that means in practical terms uh, from your position. What does the transition look like for you and what are the options that MSC has ahead of it? Well, I'd just reiterate that that ultimately the the final solution here has to be complete decarbonization of the shipping sector, and MSC definitely believes in that. We believe we will get there. Uh, we believe the shipping sector will get there, but I cannot tell you exactly how uh, for the reasons that, that you highlighted, and I'll, I'll provide a little bit more detail on that, um, but we can't fail. We, we have to do this. This is not an option, and it's going to be a long, hard journey that's going to involve the entire value chain, and that includes our customers that have to understand uh, they have to be partners in this and share in it. So what do we have available right now? Basically, you have three things available at scale today you can do. One is energy efficiency, one is fossil-based LNG, and the third is uh, is is biofuels. 
uh, they all three have their limitations. Uh, with biofuels, uh, the scale and cost and competition for those and making sure that they're actually sustainable at source uh, from the upstream side is, is really going to be a controlling factor that's a challenge. And with fossil-based LNG, there is a, a limited amount of greenhouse gas uh, net benefit that you get, and you've got to overcome some technical challenges with, with methane slip. Um, to, to even get the maximum potential out of that. But if you can't progress on to a different type of methane, whether it's bio or synthetic, uh, you're never going to get to where you need to get to. So it's got that limitation. And the third is energy efficiency. And we do all three of those in various parts of our, our business and uh, we'll look to continue to do all three of those because that's what we can do now. But of those three, energy efficiency is the one that I think, because it tends to be kind of inherent in in way we operate our fleets day to day, we sleep on a little bit as to its importance for the future. And these future solutions that really are going to provide decarbonized fuels and what we ultimately need here all have challenges to some degree of energy density uh, from a volumetric standpoint. So the less of it that we actually have to carry because maybe we operate more efficiently and still to provide the same amount of autonomy is going to be a big part of making some of those more challenging energy density problems, something that we can truly overcome and and deploy at scale. And then also, as you look at the really promising solutions, at least in the short to midterm, they're looking like they're going to be extremely expensive compared to today's fuel costs uh, for the most part. So, to really get to those options and close the gap between the various fuel types when it comes to cost feasibility, energy efficiency is going to be, my prediction, more important in the future than it even is today. And we shouldn't run away from that, that that has a cost benefit too. We should embrace it because where environmental sustainability and cost efficiency come together, um, it, it's, it's actually a good mix and something we should be embracing. And that's something we can do both today and the future and make a big difference. Mm. I mean, we've we've talked a lot about this on the podcast uh, from various different experts across the supply chain. But I mean, you're really there as a an operator that's making investment decisions. I think as an industry, we're we're focused on the R and D that's required to get, say, hydrogen off the off the blocks and and, and ammonia, and all of that is 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 coming. And you know, we can debate where that money is going to be coming from. But that nuts and bolts efficiency that you talk about that is that's business as usual in many respects for for the investment that lines are making do you think there's enough being plowed into that basic reduction of of efficiency measures uh, on a on a sort of sustainable basis rather than just looking for the silver bullet of a of a zero carbon fuel down the line i think that looking for a silver bullet first of all is is a mistake and i think it, it those that are pointing towards one particular solution I think are giving bad advice for a couple of reasons. One is, if you look at our fleet as a microcosm of, of the shipping industry in general, we have over 600 ships. We've got you know, 560 or so sailor container ships, a few bulk carriers, a few rowers, 18 large modern cruise ships, 12 row packs, ocean going ships, and uh, some high speed craft as, as well. We are facing the sorts of challenges that the entire industry has, and we don't see any one particular decarbonization solution being suitable for our entire fleet. So I think as a mm -hmm. practical matter, you have to be looking for a solution set here. 
And you may very well come to the conclusion that some of our our colleagues have in the industry that they should eliminate some choices and focus on you know a much smaller number, you know something one or greater. We have not taken that approach. We instead still have very much an open mind until we see this play out a little bit further. And we're not sitting back on our hands by any stretch of the imagination. We're doing trials with all sorts of promised technologies that come up both on the energy efficiency side and looking forward to things that we would deploy with new fuels. With energy efficiency, I think continued investment is still very important because there is some untapped potential there that's not going to get us to decarbonization, but it will help us on the progression and it will help make some of those decarbonization solutions more viable, as I I mentioned a moment ago. Mm. So, for example, um, the way we operate our fleets port to port Um, whether you call it just-in-time or port optimization. um, There are many things, I think, on the operational side that deserve more attention and and more application. We're making some good progress there. There's some untapped potential in that. I also do think there's things we're working with, like air lubrication, that still haven't seen their full potential, that have, have some opportunity to provide us some greater gains. So I don't think we should let up on that at all. But we do need advances in the energy conversion devices, whether it's modified internal combustion engines. So for example, making a dual fuel engine more efficient on either of the fuels and closing that efficiency gap that sometimes they have inherent with those because right now they tend to not be optimized for either either one. And so uh, the engine OEMs, I think, can help us with that. And also fuel cells, because if we can get them available at scale to where they can support ocean shipping in a, in a meaningful way, then I think that you have an inherent energy efficiency that comes with that new technology feature and energy conversion device that's kind of a double win. Mm. And, you know, what you described there is is clear. And I think, you know, it's obvious to most that there is no one size fits all uh, when it comes to both fuel choice and the infrastructure that goes around energy efficiency in the future, generally speaking. You know, we are a fragmented industry. We operate internationally in very different circumstances. And I think that will be the case. But what you're describing is very much a future that is looked at from tailoring it to your specific needs and i wonder if you have you have any concerns in terms of uh that multi-fuel future from a supply side Uh, you know the availability of these fuels is ultimately not going to be down to the shipping industry alone you're going to be competing for many of these future fuels uh, and technologies with other sectors as well would it be fair to say that this sort of uh environmental hedge betting approach, taking, you know, multiple different strands is also part of not knowing what is going to be available down the line. I think it's a, a very fair statement. And some of what you just had is, is is very consistent with messages that I have delivered to others as well, that we are going to remain a relatively small part of the overall energy picture. And the more efficient we get, um, you know, the more we're going to contain that growth, even if global trade still continues to grow. So for us to be myopic and think, okay, we found the great solution for us, so bring it on, is missing a big part of the puzzle, that the entire society is looking for good decarbonization energy solutions here, and many of the best ideas for us are going to be the best ideas for others. So just finding what we think is the best pathway 
doesn't necessarily make it available to us or make it available soon to us because you're right, we will have to compete with other users. So I've come to the conclusion that one of the best things that we can do right now to help ourselves amidst that uncertainty of elements we don't control because we certainly as a company and I don't think as a, a sector in, in containerized shipping or even as the shipping industry are really going to be able to drive the supply side of this. It's first of all, not our expertise, but mm -hmm. second, the scale isn't quite there beyond sending a meaningful demand signal, which we can do. And, and that's important that we do that, that I think that we need to be ready to accommodate a variety of solutions. So those things that you can do today to be thinking about solutions for existing ships, which are a more limited bundle of possibilities, and maybe more importantly, for the investments that we're making today and in the near term to be fuel flexible so that you could be nimble as the fuel supply chains that really we don't control um, mm. show themselves with a little bit more clarity and maturity than we're seeing today. Yes, and that strikes me as a very realistic assessment. But we've seen uh, maybe some of your competitors, but certainly shipping companies out there making some pretty bold, spicy statements around uh, net zero commitments ahead of regulatory guidelines and people really trying to put dates to these things. Now, although interesting, and you use the word signal, and it's a, an interesting signal to the market in terms of what the expectations are, I would argue that setting those dates is perhaps unrealistic in some respects in that you're setting a goal, but you know you have no detail by which you can understand how you're going to achieve that. Now, I note that MSC hasn't put a date out there, but I mean, when do you expect to have a, a zero emission ship in the fleet? And, and, and do you have any idea on timelines? So I'm going to kind of speculate on a, a specific date, and, and, and here's why. This is not a challenge where success is measured by the best soundbite or the best press statement or the best aspirational goal. This is a challenge that is measured in its success by whether you actually decarbonize. And I don't know when that will be yet. I do know it has to be soon. I do know that 50% absolute by 2015, challenging as it looks today, may not satisfy the societal norms of the next few years and, and the acceleration of the policy pressure to get there. So we may need to be thinking in terms you know, even more aggressive than that. But I can't tell you an exact date because at the end of the day, to really decarbonize shipping relies upon the development at scale of sustainably sourced fuels. And the shoreside upstream component matters a lot here. And, and a lot of that infrastructure is at best in its infancy. Some of it doesn't exist at all yet or in any measurable way. And we've really got to see that play out a little bit. We can push for it. Again, as I said before, we can send the demand signal for however that's helpful to our energy providers. But I find it not all that helpful to set a date out aspirationally um, as if it's fact when we don't really know how we can get there just yet. And I'm all for being aggressive and, 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 and pushing on and forcing ourselves to, to reach for goals. But at this point, 
there's a lot of uncertainty about it and we shouldn't kid ourselves. And I think that those that are making those kind of statements, you know, have measured that risk and think that, you know, it's worth it to have a target to shoot at. But I can assure you when it's within range for us and we can see what it looks like and how we'll get there through the various means we're pushing on, we're going to be a leader in getting there. It's just, we've not been comfortable yet setting that type of an aspirational goal or statement. Keeping in mind, the shipboard technology side is advancing much faster, in my opinion, relatively speaking, to the fuel availability side, because it's not just developing it in the abstract. It's got to be delivered not only in the upstream, but in the midstream and to the ship when we need it, where we need it, and on a reliable basis. So it's it's one thing to say you've got a ship. It's another thing to actually have the fuel and be able to pay for it and put it on board and have the, the value chain, you know, absorb what's going to be required here to do it. Uh, we, we talked about the industry's somewhat limited ability to determine the availability of fuels and to some extent control the development of the infrastructure that's going to need to go around some of these future fuel developments. But the flip side of that, of course, is that the industry, as fragmented as it is, can work together a little bit more efficiently than perhaps it's doing now. Collaboration is obviously the buzzword uh, uh, to so many of the problems that we're facing as an industry. But what do you think? Do you do you think the industry needs to work together a little bit more efficiently around these big tectonic shifts? I do think we need to work together more effectively than than we have. And I don't think of collaboration as being a buzzword. I I think it really needs to be at the core of how we're going to succeed here. Even a company the size of ours can't possibly do this alone. I'm not convinced the maritime sector can do this alone. We not only need to work together well, and maybe uh, the proposal for the International Maritime Research Fund uh, would be a good way to help collaborate around some of those solutions, um, but we need to look beyond that as well and look outside our own bridge windows. And that's why we, for example, are engaged in in the Hydrogen Council and, and some other broader um, collaborative platforms because some of the better ideas and emerging uh, trends are, are not going to come from inside shipping. They're going to come from outside. And those that are well positioned uh, to take advantage of, of those things and also build those relationships on both a macro and a micro level are ultimately, I think, going to be more successful at, at reaching the ultimate goal here of decarbonization. Uh, we also are working very closely with energy providers and I think that they're going to be a, an absolute essential key to uh, to making this all happen in the end. Wonderful. Bud Dar, Executive Vice President of Maritime Policy and Government Affairs at MSC. Thank you for joining the Lloyd's List podcast. Thank you for having me.